The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau Episode 3 The Defectors The doorbell rang out like a fire siren. It must have been pressed with the full force of the arm and a lifetime of panic. I rushed through the narrow hallway of my house towards the front door, already seeing the shape of a woman through the frosted glass panel. As soon as I opened it, Lysam rushed past me with her air china bag strapped across the shoulder and shouting, Eight pounds! Eight pounds! Just a few feet away, past the row of parked vehicles, I saw Lai Sook hovering like a little hobbit, with an identical airline bag strapped to him. He was gesturing to a taxi driver, who looked slightly alarmed by the situation, but obviously could not understand a word his passengers had been saying to him. Glancing back, I realised that Lai Sum had already disappeared down the end of the corridor to my kitchen to be as far away from the front door. I went up to Lai Sook, asking him to go into the house and told the driver I'd be right back with the fare. I guided Lai Sook down towards the kitchen and went for my wallet to pay the driver. Walking back to my house, I realised that I was instinctively checking to see if there were any shifting net curtains around my neighbour's windows or any loitering passers-by that might be watching us. A kind of paranoia had quickly taken hold. Not surprising given the daily news reports I had been hearing about the enforced repatriations then going on. Lai Sook and his wife were already seated at the round table of my conservatory kitchen. They had not removed their airline bags and were looking up at me with the disoriented faces that I associate with survivors of a car crash. It was only then I noticed that they were both wearing woolens in the summer, a practical refugee survival kit for the long haul. Beautiful garden you've got! Lai Sum says with a Shanghai-accented English so heavy that I have to really try hard to decipher it. But unmistakably, her feelings are genuine and imbued with a straightforwardness I like. She's taller than her husband, and with a figure that is used to hard work. She wears dark-rimmed regulation spectacles, and her hair is bobbed in an unfussy way, no doubt done by the same hairdresser that her husband has confided his liberal views to some weeks ago. We try some awkward small talk, and I realise that Lai Sum's Cantonese is as difficult for me to understand as my Mandarin is to her. Lai Sook, the scholar, is fluent in both, but his spoken English is not. Somehow, we find a way to communicate. Let me make you some tea, I offer, busying myself in the kitchen. It's surprising how British I've become since living 20 years in this country. Lai Sook's quiet voice is tremulous with emotion. Our apologies for disturbing you. His eyes were welling up, and thankfully the embarrassed silence is drowned by the chugging of the electric kettle. Lai Sum's voice rises above the sound of the boiling water, and she says something that 
definitely has the tone of remonstration towards her husband. Please, we must ring our daughter and son-in-law in Japan, he asks meekly. The phone conversation with her daughter and son-in-law is urgent and panicky. Lai Sum keeps her face close to her husband's as he speaks into the mouthpiece and lobs in occasional authoritative instructions. As they spoke, I wonder how their family might be treated in Japan. Japan only ceded to join the international system of refugees in 1978 and has a deep cultural resistance to accepting outsiders. In addition, any country granting asylum to Chinese dissidents would be endangering their relationship with China. Lai Suk's son-in-law was doing very well in IT and had been sent to further his studies in his field in Tokyo. The authorities permitted the couple to go abroad together, no doubt because she was the daughter of a trusted high-ranking official under the wings of the liberal premier Zhao Ziyang and his coterie. This was doubly unusual as her parents, Lai Suk and Lai Sam, were already posted abroad. As in all repressive regimes, the family members are important pawns in the eyes of the authorities to ensure you toe the line. But now the entire family was out of the direct control of the authorities. After their phone call to Tokyo had finished, they told me the reason for their change of mind since yesterday. Their daughter was in floods of tears when they told her that they could not defect. She and her young husband were fearful for their own future with parents that are deemed to be enemies of the ruling party. I do not know whether she pleaded with her parents, but my visitors ultimately took this irreversible and monumental decision for their child. In their phone call, they told the young couple to disappear from each of their workplaces and immediately find new lodgings away from their previous abode. They also instructed them to use my address and phone number to contact them. I recalled Lai Sook telling me how the authorities had deliberately separated his family during the Cultural Revolution when their child was growing up sending one parent away to the fields to carry down for the peasants and then sending the other parent away as soon as the first returned home. Love thy country, not your family, was the mantra. Their daughter must be a very tough young woman. This family of four was now in a stateless limbo. Lai Sam began to talk quickly in Mandarin to her husband. Her Shanghai accent made it impossible for me to guess even what the content of their conversation was about. He then turned to me and asked whether he could use the phone to quickly ring Beijing. He knew that when they did not return to the Maida Vale Embassy before the 10.30 curfew, the whole building would know that they must have run away and would then inform the authorities. But who are you going to ring in Beijing? I was worried about wiretapping, which had hitherto remained in the realms of spy fiction. We want to ring our best friends, who are also our neighbours. Why do you need to tell them? 
They will find out soon enough. They have our keys. We want them to go into our flat and take all the good belongings so they can enjoy them. The tone of the ensuing phone call was anguished, hushed and speedy. He was welling up and she gave him her white-pressed cotton handkerchief. He put down the phone slowly. I let him recover a moment and he started to pull his wallet out of his pocket. He extracted a Polaroid photo, looking at it sadly and fondly. I was expecting this to be a photo of his daughter. But instead, he pointed at the photo and said, I just asked my friend to take this and other things in our apartment. The photo was of a full-height refrigerator with a crocheted doily on top and a vase of plastic flowers. It is the first refrigerator we ever owned and it took years of application to get one, even for a high-ranking officer. Our friends went through thick and thin with us during the dark years and he's also in the party but he's not as stupid as I was opening my big mouth. It is a very nice apartment. We were also given permission to buy video cameras, hi-fi and television which is a great privilege. It costs a lot of our savings. <sighs> told them that we must ring their niece Becky in Hong Kong to tell her they got their fur coat. I thought this would at least alert their relatives in Hong Kong and Australia to be ready to provide further assistance. They spoke to their niece briefly, thanked her and rang off. We three then just sat there in my conservatory, looking numb and lost. Please make yourself at home here. I have to confess that as I uttered these words, my brain was saying, what the hell are you doing? I have always fiercely guarded my solitude and was not used to sharing my home with anyone. Let me show you around the rest of the house. So kind of you. As we pass by the dining room and the living room, she says, what a beautiful house. Thank you. Please come and see your bedroom upstairs. On entering, they spot the big red suitcase waiting for them like a patient pet, and I see their eyes light up with the comforting familiarity of it. They put down their airline bags, and Lysam looks out of the bedroom window at all the suburban back gardens, while Lai Sook just sits on the edge of the bed and lets out a huge sigh. <sighs> Come down in a while, and we can have some supper. Buyukushu means please don't be polite. Another one of those expressions routinely issued in Chinese. Please come down when you're ready. I leave the room and slip back downstairs to the kitchen. The noodles I stocked up in the last few days come into good use. So does the jar of black bean and chilli sauce now paired with the beef slices. Lai Suk and Lai Sam enter my dining room, very much like new students come into a college dorm, trying to look compliant and pleasant to hide their awkwardness. 
All three of us feel the incongruity of the situation now. We're basically strangers, about to have a meal together in this our first evening as defectors and protector. And none of us yet knows how our life will be shared together, or indeed how long this strange union will last. We eat quietly, and when I come back from clearing the dishes with Lysam in the kitchen, Lai Suk is already smoking a cigarette, looking pensive. He lets out another sigh. <sighs> Being a theatre and television director, I can read pretty quickly how certain characters like to be seen and what the core characteristics they have. I think to myself, he is certainly not the liberated feminist husband, and neither is he expected to be by his wife. He is smoking in a stranger's house without asking permission. I surmise that his rise in the party to a fairly high-ranking diplomat and his two years' tenure in London as head of department has given him the kind of confidence that only an authoritarian society can bestow. I was hoping that, in the smoke-shrouded silence, he was making plans for their formal defection, as he had hinted to me in our first meeting in the car at Maida Vale. Please let us stay for a couple of days, and then we have plans for Australia, he has said. While we were sipping tea, I decided to break the silence. So, did things suddenly turn bad yesterday in the building? A friendly colleague hinted to me that a new message had come from Beijing and our names are on the list. The list? For immediate repatriation. Lai Sook, what plans have you got? Silence. You told me in the car that you got plans. We listened secretly to the BBC World Service and we have heard countries such as France, the USA and Australia are taking in dissidents. The Dominican Republic would do that for cash price. But you have no contact or plans as such? Silence. His head bowed. Lysam launched a torrent of questions at her husband about our conversation in Cantonese and English that she had only partly understood. We have relatives in Australia. Now, please help us write a declaration. A declaration that expresses our reason to defect. For the next couple of hours, I struggled to translate their long and frankly tedious essay about the last 40 years of Chinese history. They thought a knowledgeable and passionate account of their views against the present regime would get them asylum, while I gently pointed out that the only way was to prove that they would be persecuted if they returned to their homeland. After a further couple of calls to their daughter and son-in-law in Japan, we finally finished composing the declaration. But none of us know what to do next. Do we walk into the local police station with his written declaration and hope to speak to a kindly sergeant as in the old TV series Dixon of Doc Green? Or should we turn up at the home office the next morning and try to find the right department to submit it to? 
Or should I try to ring the BBC and hope to speak to Kate Aidy or John Simpson in case they return from reporting in Tiananmen Square and can offer advice? I have no idea if any of these steps might endanger Lai Sok and Lai Sam, and I have no way to find out. This is, after all, before the age of Google. If you both agree, then I shall ring my well-connected and knowledgeable friend Charlie. He may know somebody to advise what to do next. They agree. I ring Charlie, a documentary filmmaker for Granada Television, who lives in Scotland and has another home in North London. His liberal circle of friends in Islington include many journalists, writers and politicians. So I surmise he may be able to give me a clue as to the next move. Charlie does not disappoint. He's a kind and generous friend. He fully approves of what I'm doing. After trying to find out more details about the situation and making a few phone calls himself, he gives me the number of a human rights lawyer called Bernie Simons. Charlie says he does not know Bernie personally, but I trust him to know this would be a good start. So I tell Lai Sook and Lai Sam that we will call Bernie's office the next morning. Across our bedrooms that night, I hear Lai Sook's deep sighs, accompanied by Lai Sam's sonorous snoring. Little do I know that this will become the regular soundtrack for many more nights yet, nor that the muffled sounds of their lovemaking will make me squirm in embarrassment, as if I'm eavesdropping on my own parents' intimacy. The next morning, blue skies and sunshine beckon, a promising omen for the mission that lies ahead. But the atmosphere is very subdued and tense as we get ready. They both spend a lot of time making themselves look immaculate and respectable. Sitting upright in my living room, they wait for me to get ready as I'm the last to use the only bathroom. Their official suits are pristine monochrome grey. His black lace-ups are well polished, but her white nylon see-through pumps are perhaps the only giveaway of their hurried exit from the embassy. I now see what this couple can look like as officials in that embassy, although the two identical China airline bags at their feet do not fit the image. They carefully put in folders their declarations that we spent the previous evening writing and typing out. Before we set out, they each put on big pairs of sunglasses, his with gold wire rims and hers all plastic. We walk briskly to South Hills Tube Station and ride to Covent Garden to reach Bernie Simon's office. They are obviously nervous and surprised that we did not take a cab. It transpires that they had never ventured out much from the Maidervale area in all of their two years, and certainly not by public transport. Hardly a word is spoken during the tube journey. Find the gap between the train and the platform. 
the solicitor's office is not too far from the station, and we hurried through the morning crowd. It had been remarkably easy to speak to Bernard Simons earlier on the phone at 9am. My tone of voice must have triggered an urgent response. He sounded laid-back and compassionate and invited us to come to his office straight away. I've never used a lawyer before except in conveyance for my homes and must admit that the question of legal fees already raised a red light in my head. My upbringing in an ordinary Chinese family in post-war Hong Kong has imbued me with a kind of monetary practicality that borders on paranoia in everything regarding debt and financial security. Yet, I am too polite to mention the subject to my visitors. It turned out to be a stroke of immense good fortune that we have found Bernie Simons. I did not know that he was already known worldwide as a radical civil rights lawyer. Yet, he is the real hero of this story. I cannot do any better than to quote his obituary only four years later. Lawyers have to listen, but few are good listeners. Bernard Simons possessed that rare ability. For a quarter of a century, his career as one of Britain's leading civil and criminal lawyers saw him nurture a successful firm in which he established the principle that no client should be turned away. His courageous approach led to a practice of great diversity, which was reflected in the unlikely combination of clients to be found in Simons, Murhead and Burton's waiting rooms. The Independent, 5th of June, 1993. And here we are, another unlikely combination of clients. Bernie, he says right away that's what he wants to be called, welcomes us into his meeting room. All formal Georgian wood panels and stately furniture. This is in utter contrast to his easy, relaxed and gentle manner as he quietly listens to me tell their story. He gives them the occasional little smile that is always genuine and never overdone. He then carefully ticks down their names, their official titles in the Chinese government, and looks attentive rather than worried or bemused, when Lai Suk seemed to have trouble in even knowing the exact English translations of their posts. They present the documents of their declaration, and after patiently examining the content, he quietly puts them aside. There is no secretary or assistant present in that room. Bernie personally takes down the details of their daughter and son-in-law in Tokyo. He explains that, for the moment, it's the right decision to ask their family to just lay low in Tokyo while he represents their plight to apply for asylum in the UK. Does that mean he's willing to tick up the case? I'm immensely relieved in that moment. After a quick translation into Cantonese of what Bernard Simons have been saying, Lysuk and Lysum well up and express their gratitude to him. I decided to raise the subject of cost openly so that my visitors can also understand the implications. I have absolutely no idea what money they hold. Bernie has already asked Lysuk if they have any bank accounts in the UK or China. They tell him they have withdrawn all their cash from their accounts at the Bank of China but only have very little savings in Beijing. 
The way the Communist Party works is that they look after their higher-ranked officials' daily needs. All their food and even their uniforms are free, but the monetary rewards are minimal. Lai Suk, I later learned, was earning £70 a month. This way, the Communist Party has complete control and on the surface still remains truthful to the ideology reflected in the name of the party. But as is now well known, since the formation of the People's Republic of China in 1949, the Orwellian state of hierarchy and privilege has grown without restraint. Many party officials became billionaires through corruption with estates hidden round the world. But I was certain that Lai Suk and Lai Sam's privileges were limited to their apartment in Beijing, with the extras like refrigerator, video cameras, but nothing much more. Bernie, I need to know how much I would have to find myself to help them, and how long is it likely to be for? His response is immediate and unexpected. Since you are not a family member, and none of them are in the country, we would not put the legal costs on you, or on them since they are political refugees applying for asylum. For the time being, we will be sustaining the legal costs through various charitable organisations. We can discuss further as time goes on. Lysuk and Lysam listened carefully, not fully understanding the full speech, but enough for their faces to show relief. What do we do now? Um, go to the police station? No, um, I can handle all initial procedures for applications to the Home Office. This action will in turn be communicated to the Chinese Embassy, and no doubt they will object to this procedure and ask for their return. But even in this state of application, they will be under the jurisdiction of protection in the UK. How long will this procedure take? We do not know, but it will take time. Our previous experience with the Iranian students took two years for their applications for asylum to be resolved. There is stunned silence. In the meantime, where can they go once you have informed the Home Office? Lai Suk and Lai Sam understand my questions clearly and I can feel them tense up. Well, the Home Office can provide a safe house somewhere. Lai Sam whispers to her husband. Safe house? What's that? Her husband is irritated by this interruption and just translated as Houses that are safe. Or they can stay with you, suggests Bernie. To this day, I've never forgotten that absolutely frozen moment when two heads turned towards me with eyes of such suffering and pain and fear. So that was a no-brainer. I said, yes, please stay with me. The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau was produced by Mukti Jane Campion and it's a CultureWise production. In the next episode, the Chinese defector's British asylum application takes an unexpected turn.